cross this morning because the theme is salvation. We're talking about discipleship. We're talking about how we take the truths of Scripture, interweave them into our lives, teach one another, exemplify them for one another, motivate one another as best we can, and then let those truths of Scripture flow out from our lives. I'm passing out a sheet that uh, has some terms on it, uh, and they have my attempts at definition. There'll be a lot of controversy over these, and what I'd like to do with these sheets is to use them in our Wednesday nights for a discussion. So when I get to that part of the message, I'll ask you to refer to them. You can just kind of hang on to them for now. We want to talk about God's plan. Not working real good, Sam. Oh, there we go. God's plan to rescue humans from their problems. The question often is, why can't we rescue ourselves? Why isn't this something that I can just do on my own? We're, we're motivated that way. In fact, the pride that we have in our lives makes that statement over and over again. This becomes a, a more of a problem than, than a, a, a solution. But the truth is, the reason we can't rescue ourselves um, looks something like this. I remember the first time I saw the Grand Canyon. I was uh, flying to San Diego and the pilot said, if you look out your, what was it, the right window, you'll see the Grand Canyon. I'd never seen it before, heard a lot about it, seen some pictures. I looked out the window and I went, oh! And I started praising it. That place is big. That is one big hole. And um, you can't, in pictures, get the feel for how big it is. You have to be there. You have to go there. You have to see it either from the air. This I thought was kind of a neat thing. Um, humans have made this horseshoe thing out there so you can go out and look straight down on one mile. Straight down. Interesting, yes. Uh, it's just too big. It's just too big. And folks, that's why we can't rescue ourselves. Not because of the Grand Canyon, but like the Grand Canyon... Um, the problems are just too big. The need in our lives is just too inc incredibly great. And um, the solution is too far over our heads. And we need to understand that. We cannot rescue ourselves. There's a word that is often used by theologians very controversial word, uh, but a very important word. And so I wanted to take a few minutes to try and wrap ourselves around that a little bit. The, the, the concept of depravity is the concept of the Grand Canyon, really. It, it's that the bigness, the overwhelmingness, the, the whatever else it is, we don't have the ability to solve our own problems. Depravity, says Keith Lee. A condition against which mankind is completely helpless when left to his own human resources. Let me say that again. Depravity is a condition against which mankind is completely helpless when left to his own human resources. Other definitions, this one I thought was, was very... Um, pointed and fit very well with what we were trying to communicate this morning. In spite of all man's expectations of a new society in which he is able to bring about peace and prosperity, the world remains shattered and torn by the ravages of sin, whether it be locally, I guess we could add the word whether it be individually, locally, nationally, and internationally. Folks, sin is a huge, huge problem. Sin creates barriers between us and God. And the barriers are so large, so multiple, that we need God's work in salvation. I'm going to ask JP to come and communicate a little bit about this concept of the barriers. 
that we experience. Hello. Good morning. I uh, I get to bring you the bad news this morning, so that's fun. Um, these barriers. Um, I was looking at that picture that Lev put up of the wall, and I uh, it reminded me of the Berlin Wall. And I asked my wife, um, the Berlin Wall that that was separating North and South Korea, right? And she just looked at me like I was the stupidest man in the world, probably because I am. And she's like, no, that was East and West Germany. It's like, oh, okay. Sorry, just asking. Um, <clears throat> but there's this barrier, there's this wall. Um, in Ephesians chapter 2, we, we, uh, we spent a little time there this morning um, in the breaking of bread. I'm going to move to one of these. I'm sorry. This thing's too tall for me. And I uh, can't see my notes real well. So there we go. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and 16. You don't really have to turn there. I'm just going to mention it. But uh, Paul speaks of this barrier. Um, He uses the words, a dividing wall between God and man. Uh, and as long as, as, as Lev was saying, as long as this barrier exists, uh, there's no possible way for fellowship between God and man. Um, in the Old Testament, this, this barrier was, was seen in a, a physical aspect through the temple. Um, if you would turn to Hebrews chapter 9, uh, the author of Hebrews recalls this temple and the barrier that was there. I'm going to read that real quick. Um, <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 6. says, these preparations having been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, referring to the temple, performing their ritual duties. <clears throat> but into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet open as long as the first is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So there was this curtain, and we know that when Christ died, the curtain was ripped, but the curtain was representative of this barrier between God and man. The presence of God dwelt on the other side where the Ark of the Covenant was, and you couldn't go in there. Only the high priest could go in there, and only once a year, and not without blood, could he go in there. So there's this barrier, and I want to look real quick this morning, um, as we study through Scripture, we see a number of different aspects that play into working together to make this barrier, Um, and I want to look at those. Um, The first first thing I want to look at is the holiness of God, and if you were here last week, we... uh, we talked a, uh, a bit about the holiness of God uh, during the Lord's Supper, and I really appreciate um, <clears throat> how much was stressed on that the holiness of God means so much more than God doesn't sin. Um, if you weren't here, that's all right. We're going to go over over it again. Um, and as you've probably heard, the Bible speaks about God's holiness more than any other of his other attributes, um, more than love. Um, Isaiah 57:15 declares that his name is holy. We read in Isaiah 6, 3 and Revelation 4, 8 that the cherubim, day and night and never ceasing, say, holy, holy, 
holy is the Lord God Almighty. Habakkuk says in, in chapter 1 that uh, of God, Thine eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. John writes in chapter 1 of 1 John, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. I love how Caleb last week um, was, uh, was talking about the holiness of God and uh, stressing how uh, not only does God not sin, but He is separate from sin. He is set apart from sin. He can't have any fellowship with sin. Thus, we being sinful beings, He can't have fellowship with us in our sinful state because He is holy, because He is perfect, because He is completely righteous. Now, if we take this attribute of God, God is holy, God is righteous, and we look at God and we see that in Scriptures that He is the judge, um, and rightly so because He is God, He is the Creator, the Sustainer, um, the Almighty, then He has to be a holy and a righteous judge, which means He must judge fairly and justly, which is bad news for us. He cannot act contrary to His holy nature, so He must judge us in accordance to His nature. In uh, 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul calls God the righteous judge. Moses in Deuteronomy 32 says, The rock, he, His work is perfect, for all His ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is He. Since God is holy and cannot sin, is set apart from sin, He can't have fellowship with sinful man, and is the holy, righteous judge, He cannot be partial or unfair or just overlook our sin. He must be just. Which brings us to the next barrier, our sin. God is holy. We are sinful. Romans 3.23. Are you ready? We're going to say it together. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all know that verse. We've known it forever. I don't know how many times I've, I've said it, whether in Awana or at camp to earn badges to get points for my team. We know that verse. Romans 3.23. But it's true. We've all sinned. And a couple weeks ago, if you were here, Lev told this delightful story about he and Theron jumping out of a hotel and splatting on the cement below. Uh, usually when I give an illustration, I talk about two people trying to throw rocks to like Chicago or something, something impossible, something a little less graphic. But nonetheless, it gets the point across very, very well um, that we do. We fall short. God's standard is perfection, holiness. And we fall short. I want to read Isaiah 59, verse 1 and 2, if you turn there with me. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. God's standard is perfection of holiness. And it's not that God doesn't want fellowship with us. That's evident in the fact that He sent His Son. It's not that God isn't powerful enough to have fellowship with us. Let's read Isaiah 59. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or His ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. It's not that He doesn't want us. It's not that He doesn't have the power, but our sins have created this barrier, this wall. They have separated us. And as we saw in His holiness, He can't act contrary to His nature, to His holy nature. Because we are sinful. The Bible speaks of, uh, I believe, three different aspects 
that make up the barrier of sin in our lives. It's not often that I have like pointed sermons like five points and then three subpoints, but here we go. Um, the first is imputed sin. Uh, my wife and I were talking about the word imputed, and we both knew kind of like what it meant. But kind of like when we tried to define life this morning, you're like, it's life, you know? Impu- imputed. It, uh, it means imputed. To impute, you know? Um, so I looked it up in Webster's, and he gave a pretty good de- definition. It says, to credit to a person or cause. To credit to a person or cause. Um, if we read Romans chapter 5, uh, which was mentioned this morning as well. Um, 12 through 18. Turn there with me. Romans chapter 5. It says this, Therefore, just as sin came in the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin did not, is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who sinned, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if many die through, one's man tres- through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. For the free, for the free, <clears throat> like a tongue twister. For the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So we see that Adam's one sin, his one trespass, led to the condemnation of all mankind. Adam was the representative head of the human race. And he sinned. He fell in the garden. And God views the human race as fallen because of Adam's one sin. And we see in... Genesis chapter 3 when God's dealing with that when He kicks them out of the garden and when He gives the curse to all mankind because of Adam's one sin. His sin was credited to the human race. We all suffer the consequences of Adam's mistake because he was our head, our father. Now this is a very horrible example but I'm going to give it anyway. Have you ever when you were a kid, when you were in school, or when you were at camp, because of one of your classmates or campmates' mistakes, they choose to talk while the teacher's out of class or misbehave, and she comes back, and she punishes the entire class because of those one or two people. I'm sure it's happened. It happens from time to time. It happened to me. She doesn't always do that. But that happens. Sometimes the, classes say, the class say doesn't get recess anymore because Johnny and Billy were doing such and such. And the entire class suffers for their mistake. Like I said, this is a very poor example. But because of Adam's sin, the consequences of that, that sin was imputed to the entire human race and God used the human race as fallen. Uh, second, inherited sin. I mentioned this verse this morning. Um, Psalms 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Psalms 58.3 says, 
the wicked are estranged from the, from the womb, and those who speak lies go astray from birth. Ephesians chapter 2 says that by nature we are children of wrath. We are born with a sin nature. And the fact is that men do not sin and become sinners. We sin because we are sinners. As much as it sounds nice to think that those little babies when they're born and they're so small and precious and cute are so they look so innocent and pure they're born with a sin nature my mind thinks of like the little pictures that you see of like babies with little angel wings uh, but it's true we are born when we are conceived We have a sin nature. It's passed it down from our, from our parents. Third is individual or personal sin, which is pretty self-explanatory and is simply the acts of sin that we as humans commit on a daily basis. We are sinners. We sin. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. And I don't really need to go into that one at all because we know it and we do it. So this brings us to the third aspect, I believe, of the barrier of sin, which is the penalty for sin. Romans 3. Turn over, turn back a couple pages if you're still in, in Romans 5. Romans 3, verse 19. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Colossians 2.14 says that Scripture has shut up all men under sin. Romans 3.23 again says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. The law was set up. The standard was given. And the penalty for that standard was given. And as we read in Scripture, we are guilty before God. Just as a criminal is found guilty in court for a crime... The law was given and the penalty for our sin is given justly. We are sinners. We deserve judgment. And God, the holy and righteous judge, must judge justly. So that penalty of sin is there, glaring, saying we are guilty before God. The fact is men, man has a debt to pay. And that debt is so great that we can't pay it. It's not like a fine or a couple years in prison. And we try, many men try, to pay that debt by being religious or moral or doing good works, good deeds. Matthew talked this morning a little bit about Catholicism and Islam and how they try to earn their way into the afterlife to cover their sins. Scale and balance thing, but it doesn't work. For we are all under the penalty, penalty of sin, and the penalty for sin is death. The wages of sin is death. When, uh, when I'm at camp and I'm, I'm talking to a little kid, a camper, um, you know, I always go to this verse, Romans 6.23. And uh, usually when you're talking to kids, there's words they don't know, like wages. So I use this example with them. I say, so do you, your parents, your dad has a job? Yeah. So he goes to work every day, yeah? And at the end of the month, your dad gets paid, right? Yeah. 
you know, they don't know exactly how it works, but they understand that dad gets paid with money because they buy things. And I say, well, what's that called? Like a paycheck. That's right. And that paycheck is your father's wages. That's what he earns. That, the paycheck's not a gift from his boss, is it? Is it? No. Your father works. You all understand this. You work. You get paychecks. It's not a gift. It's what you earn. You go to work. You work. You do your job. You get a paycheck. It's your wages. We live. We sin. Our wages, our payment, is death. It's what we earn. And one day, we'll all die, unless the rapture comes. But, as far as I know, there's still no cure for death. All men die. And if we die without Christ, as we'll hear in in a little bit, salvation, then we face eternal death, eternal separation from God, an eternal barrier, which is the penalty for our sin, which brings us to the fourth aspect, spiritual death. Now, this is going to sound a little bit repetitive because I pretty much shared this uh, at the breaking of bread this morning, my fourth point, but here we go again. We understand the wages of death. We've been over that couple times this morning. Uh, and as Romans 5.12 says, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We understand that we are spiritually dead. I talked about Ephesians chapter 2 this morning and twice it says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. If you read through Romans 5, chapter, uh, chapters 5 and 6 and 7, we see that we were dead in our sin. We were spiritually dead. As we talked about, we, we were born with a sin nature. We are born spiritually dead. We are without spiritual life, without spiritual capacity. And I mentioned again this morning Nicodemus. When Nicodemus comes to Christ, what does Christ tell him? What does Christ tell him? You must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, what? What are you talking about? How am I, am I supposed to crawl back into my mother and come back out again? That doesn't make any sense. And Christ says, you were born of the flesh. Yes, you were born physically, but you must be born spiritually. You must have a new life, a spiritual life. And that new spiritual life can only come through Christ. So, not only is man separated from God by sin and by God's holy character and the penalty of sin, that judgment stands there glaring before us, but he is faced with the problem of being spiritually dead and in need of spiritual life. Which brings us to the last aspect of this barrier, which is unrighteousness. This might sound a little repetitive, but I'll try to explain. Um, I mean, all these things tie in together very closely, so some of them overlap very well. Um, But I think they all do have subtle differences that play into this barrier that is between us. Unrighteousness. Isaiah 64, 6 says that to God all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. We have no means. We have no means of gaining any standing or merit before God. There's nothing we can do. And for whatever reason, mankind cannot get this concept into their head. They don't understand it. They, and I think that there's two problems. I think that they fail to understand, as we've been talking about, the extreme holy nature of God and the extreme fall and depravity of man and how far 
those two are from each other. We are separated from God by our sin and there's nothing that we can do. The Scripture says here that anything, the best of our works, the best that we can do to present to God, to lay before His feet, appear, and when you, you look at the Hebrew here, that verse actually says that it's like soiled cloths. That's disgusting. It's like, here God, here's a dirty diaper. That's the best that we can do. We are unrighteous. We can't earn any standing or merit before God. We are separated from God by our sin and by His holiness and the penalty of our sin. And we are spiritually dead and in need of spiritual life. But we are unrighteous and in our best, all that we can do is hand God soiled garments. Thus, we have absolutely no hope of being able to break down or cross this barrier. And that's where I leave you with the bad news. Oh, yes. And it is bad news. JP's painted a, a pretty nasty picture. And so we ask the question, what is it that we need? Well, the wonderful verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, where Paul cries out to us and says, please be reconciled to God. What does that mean? Uh, <clears throat> some of you have read uh, Arthur's Lost Puppy. There's a problem here. The dog is missing. Horribly lost. We are horribly lost. The barriers are insurmountable. Tucked over there in the leaves is the puppy. And what needs to happen is the puppy needs to be restored, brought back into relationship with the owner. Let me go there again. See that leash? God owns us. We are lost and away from God. Hidden in the leaves, if you will. It's God's heart that we be brought back into fellowship with Himself to be reconciled to God. And that's a big term and it includes all kinds of very, very important words. And so, uh, that's why you have this handout. Maybe you turn to that quickly. I'm not going to go through it except to just touch on a couple things. And what I would like us to do is for our Wednesday night discussion to work through these things. There'll be some controversy. There'll be some ideas that are just, uh, tough to handle. But... Uh, that will be an important part. Here's where we teach one another. Here's where we encourage one another. Here's where we see the Word of God making an actual difference in our lives. So take these truths, recognize them, and realize that this is what God has in mind for us when He said, I want you back. I want to snuggle you like that little puppy. I can't right now, but it can be fixed. Okay? It includes things like conviction and repentance and faith, redemption, propitiation, regeneration, forgiveness, justification, sanctification, preservation, glorification, and about 30 other things. But rather than talk about those big words, let's let the ideas sink into our hearts. We could flip words around our whole life and it not impact us one bit. What we need to do is to get the ideas into us. The theology is to know the words. The reality is to let those words soak into us and make us different people. Just a couple that I want to point out here. A conviction. You know, there have been times in, in my life when in talking with a young person or a, an unsaved person, I've tried to be the Holy Spirit. And Make them convicted about things. 
But that's a work that God's Spirit does, whereby He, he causes people to begin to see the error in what they're doing, to realize that there's something wrong, to realize that there are barriers, as JP has brought out, between us. And along with that, conviction also causes me to realize that I'm not okay, that there is judgment, that holiness, justice demands that there be judgment for that sin. Conviction is a very important part of this whole business of reconciliation, as is repentance, where I turn around. The next one, and this is where it gets a little controversial. I'm going to share my opinion on this. I'd ask you to chew it over a little bit. I really believe that the faith part, the believe part, is, is something that God does in our lives. I see it as a gift. And the reason I believe this is because in studying Ephesians um, 2, 8, and 9, looked at it from a lot of different perspectives, uh, read a lot of commentaries on it, and the question I keep asking myself, what does it mean, let me say the verse, for by grace are you saved through faith. And this, this, not of yourselves, is the gift of God. What is this? And I ask the question, is he talking about the grace? Obviously. Is he talking about the salvation? Obviously. But he's also talking about the faith. You can't separate those three. God's grace, His salvation, and the faith that I need to trust Christ, I believe are all part of a gift. Now, that'll be controversial. You can kick that around a little bit. But I believe that's a work of God to bring understanding and belief into the person's heart. Otherwise, it's because I figure it out for myself. It's because I'm smarter than the next guy. And so, in order to avoid the judgment that's ahead, I'm going to take this path. You can keep going down there, but I'm so smart that I'm going to choose. No, I don't think that. I think it's all from God. I think even the faith to believe was a gift that God put into my life. Redemption, propitiation, regeneration, forgiveness, justification, sanctification. And then we come down to preservation. <clears throat> and I want to make sure that we understand this one. And I normally wouldn't make a big deal out of this, but I want to be careful here. Down the hall, as you walk in on Sunday morning, you see a little sign in the glass window of another group that gathers down the hall. And one of the things that flashes on that sign is what I believe is a direct contradiction to what we teach in this place and what we believe the Bible teaches. And so I want to make sure that I point this out because we've got young Christians, people who have just come to faith in Christ. And I don't want them to walk by and see, oh, there's a church, and read that and say that... The lie of the devil is that you're saved for eternity. Am I quoting it fairly accurately? This is the lie of the devil, says that sign down there. Folks, I believe with all my heart that when Jesus saved me, He saved me for eternity. He gave me eternal life. He preserved me, kept eternally saved by God. And so what I've done is put together an article um, that I will pass out to the small group leaders and have that available too. But that's another concept that I want you to be sure and discuss on Wednesday night. And I want you to not only discuss it, but I want you to understand how it impacts us. Because if I'm constantly worried that the salvation that Jesus has done in my life is not adequate, that there's something more that I need to add, I miss completely what salvation by grace through faith is all about. And so please make sure that you discuss that a little bit. Finally, the concept of glorification. All of those plug into this whole concept of reconciliation. So Brad's going to come and in five minutes or less explain this magnificent truth of Scripture, the who, what, when, where, why, how, and so on of reconciliation. tell you right now, it's, it's not going to be in five minutes. Unfortunately, I guess. I don't know. Four? Yeah, yeah. For you, Theron. Forget it. And I'm actually going to use the brown stand because I don't like that one because it's too short. So, I'm sorry, JP. I still love you.
But anyways, this morning, it, I'm basically going to kind of summarize all, all of that we've been talking about. And I'm going to be asking you guys a couple questions, so I hope your thinking caps are on this morning. They're really not that hard questions, so I hope all of you can answer at the same time. But the first thing that I'm going to discuss is the source of reconciliation. Who is that source? Yes, that, that's good. God is what I had in mind, but you know that that's good. Um, I'll be getting to that, JP, for you. Gregory, could you read that first verse there for me? Second Corinthians 5.18. See, that, that first thing there, it's all from God. That's what we're going to realize, kind of reiterating the fact that it's all from God. It's nothing that we can do. It, it's not like, you know, we can reconcile ourselves to God. It, it, it just doesn't make sense. You know, we're sinful man. We have a holy God. We have that barrier which, you know, destroyed our relationship with God. But, you know, it, it's amazing to me thinking that we have this barrier. God, He's holy. We have our sin. We um, just all the things like the unrighteousness that comes along with it, yet, yet, and this is what I think is really cool, yet God in His love, in His mercy, in His goodness, you know, He offers this gift, like Lev said. It's that gift. He offers this to us. And that verse, JP, you shared this morning, was Ephesians 2, 4. Um, just about, and God, rich in His mercy, and His, uh, what does it say, in His loving kindness or something like that. I can't remember exactly. Um, you know, offered this salvation to us. And so next, you know, that kind of goes right into the object. Who's the object of this reconciliation? Obviously it is. Us, yes, yes, it's us. It's man. And and going back to the fact that, you know, Scripture clearly says that. Again, Gregory, could you read 519 of 2 Corinthians? And Merlin, could you read Romans 5.10, please? Yes. And if you see in those verses that God is the one that is providing the action upon man. It's not man acting upon God. We can't reconcile God to ourselves. Again, that, I mean, that absolutely doesn't make any sense. Um, but it's God who is doing the action. And now, if, if God is the source and man is the object, then who is the agent? Yes, Jesus. Yes, thank you, JP, once again. And whoever said that over here, I don't know. Uh, but anyways, and so it, if Jesus is the agent, how did he do that? It's through an instrument, the instrument of salvation, on the death on the cross. And I'm pretty sure, Lev, you mentioned Colossians 1, 20 to 21. Uh, I don't know. It's on the sheet anyways. a couple of verses. You'll have to, you guys will have to look those up yourselves. And a couple other passages. But it's Christ alone. It's through Christ. It's God through Christ reconciling man to himself. And so in doing that, Gregor, could you read 2 Corinthians 5, 21, your last one? Right. And so there we see that Christ did this. And so how do we do it? It's by trusting in Christ that we, you know, when, when I think of this reconciliation, when you think about it, really has to be the first thing that comes before everything else. Is because without that, you can't have the, you know, the glorification or the justification or any of those other things without reconciliation coming first. And so once we believe we get a ton of things and a bunch of the results and the first thing is is that barrier that really bad news that JP was talking about is gone I mean it's completely and utterly gone we're no longer separated by that sin uh, by God's holy standard by the penalty of sin or unrighteousness um, 
Daryl, will you read Ephesians 2, 14 to 18? Thank you. I love that phrase in verse 16 there. Um, cut another translation out of that. It's killing the hostility, you know, putting to death the enmity. And just, you know, that's what Christ did on the cross. All that, it, it's gone. He killed it. It's, I don't know, whatever you say, it's, it's gone. And uh, it's just an amazing fact. And with that, with that barrier being gone, and here's something that blows my mind. And whenever I speak or anything, things that blow my mind, is, I don't know, it's just amazing to me. It's my favorite thing to say. But um, is that once that barrier is gone, we have positional sanctification. And what that means is we were once, we had that barrier. We were, we were supposed to die. We, we couldn't be in fellowship with God. And then as soon as we, that next instant, you know, amazing, we had this, death and then that next instant once we got saved we have you know we're in perfect standing with God and that I don't, I don't know that's miraculous uh, just an amazing thing we're justified through Christ uh, by that and it's just all these things just coming in that, that glorification that you know uh, sanctification all those things as soon as we get saved come on us and uh, what an amazing thought that is and so we have this awesome thing, and what does it bring us to be? It brings, you know, as saved people, we're, we're supposed to be ministers or ambassadors of reconciliation. And we have, you know, this, this is something I almost struggle with, like, saying about because I'm so horrible, horrible about it, at least that's how I feel, is just being this ambassador, going out, preaching the word, discussing it with people you know sometimes it makes me so sad I've had conversations with people and like I think Caleb said it this morning uh, just talking to people and they just don't get it and you have this awesome thing and, and you want to share it with them but they just can't understand it has to be God and you know as we mentioned before um, in Second Corinthians it's God who does it and we have to realize it's not ourselves and so relying upon God on that is a huge thing. And that's something I definitely struggle with in my life for that. But, you know, there's, there's basically two main goals of reconciliation in here. You know, our ultimate purpose is that we get this righteousness put on us and that we, as a believing sinner, we have fellowship with God now. And, you know, that's, that's an amazing thing. Uh, fellowship with God, and I, I can't wait for the day that you know when Christ comes back, and we get to actually walk with Him and talk with Him, and that, that is something I absolutely look forward to in all things. So, and, and the other is the Christ likeness that we have, and right now we obtain that you know right after we believe, and we become like Christ, and now we have. A chance here on earth, we have our lifetime to become, continue to become more like Him. And, um, uh, you know, that's, that's an amazing thing. And not even just that. And, you know, thinking through eternity, you know, we're always going to be learning. We're always going to be becoming more like Him. And uh, what an amazing God we have. What an amazing God we have. And uh, I think, Lev, you have a video to show or something? Just one final thought. In all of this, the question might come to our minds, and I think we need to uh, pursue it just a little bit. Why, why would he bother with the kind of people who are on the other side of the barrier? And it's an important concept. Uh, uh, Andy Stanley puts it this way. He says, this whole thing of salvation 
It tells us way more about God than it tells about us. And I love that concept. Uh, Salvation brings God glory. Salvation reveals the love of God to us. This wonderful thing of salvation shows His grace. It demonstrates how holy He is, how sin apart He is, and yet He can bring us into that same holiness. It allows humans to again reflect the image of God. And this would be the part that I'd like application of today as we leave here. The barriers have been broken down. Jesus has brought salvation into our lives. Now we move from here shining brightly for the Lord Jesus, reflecting the glory of God into the lives of other people. Let's make that our point. Let's make that our goal, our habit, our our practice today. Let's make this uh, a, a little test that we give ourselves between now and Wednesday. Was I reflecting the image of Christ? Were people able to see Jesus in me because of the salvation that He's brought to us? Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You love us. We thank You that You've brought us salvation. We pray that we'll bring glory to You as a result of this great work that You've done by spreading Your Word, by being the ministers, the ambassadors of reconciliation, by being the image of Christ to a a world that so desperately needs to see Him. Help us to this end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.